It's October of 1807, and Prussian soldier Karl von Clausewitz is being held in France as a prisoner of war, along with 25,000 other Prussian soldiers. A year earlier, Napoleon Bonaparte and his army invaded Prussia, in what is today modern Germany, and defeated the Prussian Saxon army. Napoleon was on a rampage across Europe, and brought forth a completely new style of war that Clausewitz, unfortunately for him, witnessed firsthand. Clausewitz eventually returned to Prussia and helped rebuild the Prussian army and state. Over the next 10 years, he developed a theory of war based on what he experienced in the Napoleonic Wars. This became his 1832 text, On War. And he thought he witnessed something, he witnessed war in its pure essence, and therefore wanted very much to take it from, you know, action to theory, take it back to theory to offer us a key to understanding this war. Ever since the book is published and until this very day, it's a it's a must read. You have to, if you want to become an officer, you will have to read Clausewitz. So my name is Gili Valdi. I'm a military historian and I study modern armies and um, um, modern military organizations and wars. On War has become something of a military Bible. This book touched on several universal truths about war and how to fight it. Clausewitz didn't want to offer us a recipe, but he offered us something else. He offered a general theory from which we can, you know, we can deduce what we should do when, we, when we're about to fight a war or if we want to uh, fight a war. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Gilly Vardy to discuss Karl von Clausewitz on war. Karl von Clausewitz was born in 1780 in the German state of Prussia, what is today northeastern Germany. He uh, joined the army at a very uh, early uh, age, uh, and he uh, started climbing his way up and um, always exhibited uh, interest in, in, in writing and in philosophy and the theory of war. He studied, well, you know, with the great military minds of his of his time, and then he he went to the um, Kriegsakademie, to the military academy. During his military studies, Clausewitz took an interest in philosophy, which would later influence his theoretical writings on war. Clausewitz himself was very much affected. He was um, he was affected by Hegelian ideas. He is he's not attending, of course, uh, uh, he's not writing a PhD, but he is attending salons. And he's very much part of a bigger conversations in in um, in Berlin and in the area. Um, very well versed in in such ideas, he has he had the chance to to talk to a lot of people who are studying uh, and philosophers who are writing philosophy. So um, even though he's not officially trained in any of it, right, he has access to uh, you know the most fashionable and, and discussed ideas around him. What did his, what did the beginnings of his um, war career look like? So Clausewitz himself is not only, of course, not a, a only or mainly a, 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 a theoretician, right? He is he fought wars, he fought against Napoleon, and it was this experience of fighting against Napoleon um, that um, that that led him that set the the, the foundations for for his um, seminal book. What really shaped his military career and his and his philosophy um, is is the Napoleonic 
Napoleonic Wars. And I would say that it shaped uh, very much the lives, right, of, of every European involved. Napoleon Bonaparte was a French military leader and emperor during the early 19th century. He got his start in the French Revolution. In the late 18th century, many French citizens were unsatisfied with their monarchical ruler, King Louis XVI. The French people revolted and fought a 10-year revolution that eventually ended the monarchy. They fought for equality, freedom, and a more democratic society. What were, what were the Napoleonic Wars about? Well, Napoleon fought for the revolution, okay, early on. And, um, you know, meteor meteorically uh, uh, rose to power. Uh, when he fights for the revolution, he fights in order to spread ideas um, of, of the idea, ideas of the revolution, but also because uh, France is attacked. But the interesting bit is that he, France, uh, representing certain ideas, the ideas of the French Revolution, uh, is attacked by a coalition of Europeans, of European governments, who are completely unhappy uh, with these ideas. After the revolution, Napoleon rose to power and continued his conquest across Europe to stabilize and protect the French government. By aligning his goals with the goals of the people, Napoleon had tremendous support and plenty of willing soldiers in the army. This was a big difference between Napoleon's army and the armies of kings throughout Europe. The French Revolution, uh, as historians say, unleashed a genie out of a bottle. Right? All of a sudden, war is everyone's business. You don't have to, if you're a European king, right? Say if you're the Prussian king, who's going to join your army? No one, basically, unless you force <laughs> them to. They don't want to fight for you. They have no interest in war. It's not their war. It's your war. This dynamic influenced the way wars were typically fought before Napoleon. The armies of the time are very, you cannot exceed uh, 90,000 men. Most of the most of the political entities involved cannot fund any more than this, and they cannot force any more people to join the army. Mostly, you can't get people to commit. They just don't want to do it. They have no reason to commit. Um, they're not interested. If you imagine, you know, this kind of warfare, and you, uh, what you will recall uh, from all the movies that you've ever watched, you know, on, on this kind of war, that the soldiers are standing together exposed in the field. And the reason that they're standing together is that's because that's easier for the commanders to see them and to force them to march forward. Discipline will keep them standing there because it's worse to get caught if you're trying to run away. It's worse if you're, you know, you, you'll, uh, if you're getting caught, uh, you'll be disciplined and punished like you wouldn't believe it. It's really, um, it's really cruel. But Napoleon, on the other hand, his men, they want to be there. They want to fight for France. They're not fighting. Eventually, they'll fight for him too, but they want to fight for France. And, and they are a part of France. They represent an idea. They're not forced to fight. They want to. And what you can get out of men who are there because they want to is far more than what you'll ever get out of men who are forced to. Having a ready and willing army was just one part of the difference between the way Napoleon fought and the rest of Europe. These wars really, you know, turned Europe uh, upside down, unleashed many, many um, ideas, ideas that uh, most of European leadership actually didn't, didn't like. Um, but, um, and it also brought war to, to the people. Right. All of a sudden, a lot of people are involved in war because Clausewitz, he is, of course, he's a soldier, 
But Napoleonic warfare was the beginning of what you and I might call total war. It wasn't total in any way, but it, that's the beginning of it. When a nation is involved in a total war, it utilizes all of a society's resources, both military and civilian. So in order to have a total war, we need total means, total goals, and total mobilization. All of it started with uh, the French Revolution, but it was still very much, still not total, right? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it's just the very beginning. Now, when Clausewitz is experiencing this, for him, it's it's a very, very traumatic and shocking experience for him and for the, you know, men and women of his generation. It's a shocking experience. They just didn't know it can get so, oh, so much more, so much worse. Because Napoleon had so many soldiers willing to fight and die for him, he was able to be more daring in his battles. Before this time, European war was a more conservative, less lethal effort. We now call that kind of fighting limited war. The reason it's less lethal is that armies are professional armies and training and arming these soldiers is very expensive. So you just don't want to commit them to battle all too often. You just don't offer battle or accept battle unless you're absolutely sure you're going to win. Uh, these are also very sort of structured um, and, and almost um, uh, well-performed uh, events, right? It's all about the geometry of, of, of uh, people standing in lines and uh, either attacking or, or, or performing very basic maneuvers. And it's all extremely limited. If you lose or win, it doesn't, you know, it's not going to change a whole lot for, for the kingdom or for the people or also for the, you know, absolute ruler. Now, part of what I think of with total war is civilians are newly vulnerable. Um, how, how were civilians killed? The, the wonderful, wonderful, the wonderful thing for Napoleon was that he actually didn't need to feed his army. You can send your, you can disperse them, right? You can send your soldiers to get their own food, that is to take it from civilians, right? And then come back, which is something, again, his enemies uh, did not enjoy. They had to feed their own soldiers, otherwise soldiers will leave. Um, so, um, and, and again, we're talking about pre-industrial, uh, pre-industrialized societies. There's an X amount of food. If soldiers are there, they're taking the food and it means that the civilians will starve. So civilians are hurt in many different ways, but it's mostly prevent, right? It, it's mostly that food is prevented from them. And then there's a lot of looting, sacking, um, and also acts of, you know, brutal acts of, of, of murder. I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to suggest that this is something new, right? If you think of the Thirty Years' War, there are definitely, you know, horrific scenes in, in, in some parts of Europe. So many civilians died. But this is the beginning, right? The rise of the National Army is also the rise of, uh, you know, for us to th really think um, about the difference between citizens and soldiers. The Napoleonic Wars had a significant impact on Clausewitz. By fighting with both the Prussian and Russian armies against Napoleon, Clausewitz got a first-hand experience of this new style of warfare. Towards the end of these wars, Clausewitz began to theorize about war based on what he had witnessed. These writings became on war. War will now touch and, and change the lives of more people. 
And so it's not only, of course, Clausewitz that is completely shaken by what he witnessed. Many Europeans uh, um, wanted to understand, to unlock the secret, right, of, of the new form of the, or the new uh, uh, way of war. And this is what he did. He is representing, you know, the uh, importance of, of the spirit and of the factors that are very difficult to uh, theorize uh, or to think about in, in, in a scientific way. And he wanted to explain how war is the product or very much shaped by such uh, forces. And yet he is also offering us, uh, despite his best efforts, offered us uh, a theory, a general theory of war. How should we or how can we understand war? And in many ways, you know, how we should fight wars. What, what, what is the form of the book and what are its main arguments? War is this, at its very essence, the pure essence of war, you cannot control it. You know how you're going to start. You never know how it's going to end, right? It's based on his experience fighting Napoleon fighting a war of, right, war of the people to which the entire, whatever the nation has to offer, right, is indeed offered. Everything is mobilized. There are no limits, no limits whatsoever to what your, the kind of effort that the nation will put into it. And therefore, right, there is no limit to the war itself. And so he's, writing this, right? He's, you know, writing eight, eight books within, uh, within one with this idea. And if you follow this idea, if you read Clausewitz based on the idea of war as a force that is violent and you cannot control it, uh, destructive, right? And you cannot control it. Uh, you read it the same way that most Westerners read it all the way to, you know, ever since it was published in 1832, uh, to uh, 1945. This is a kind of war that in order to win it, you will need to amass huge national armies. And the armies, these armies will be tasked with the, um, um, with the mission of annihilating each other. If you want to win a war that is all about destruction, right, you will need to do it. Your, the main way to do it, or almost the only way to do it, is focus on the battle. Right? You will need to initiate for and look for and accept battle. And battle, right? if you ask yourself, what is battle? Well, it's just mainly a competition of destruction. You'll, you'll put your, you know, a lot of your men in one place and you will face the enemy and hopefully, right, hopefully uh, destroy uh, the enemy. So if you read Clausewitz the way that Clausewitz, you know, intended the first, in the first iteration, you will almost necessarily end up fighting wars of, you know, massive, massive destruction and wars that will be um, total. When Clausewitz first wrote on war, his theories came from his most immediate experience fighting total wars against Napoleon. But he began to realize that if he wanted to find universal truths about war, he would need to look beyond his experiences in the Napoleonic Wars. If you look back at the history, you know, um, uh, of wars, you don't see a lot of total wars. You don't see a lot of the Napoleon, Napoleonic style, you know, wars. What you're seeing is, in, in, in Clausewitz's most uh, uh, immediate memory, you're seeing 18th century wars, which are mostly very, very, very limited 
these are wars in which, you know, two small professional armies are dancing about, you know, around each other, and they're not doing a lot of killing, and there's not a lot of destruction, and there's not a lot of um, victories, basically, or, or military decisions, right? You don't get a whole lot of that. This is why Napoleon is so, is so very successful, because he forced decision by battle. Clausewitz found that policy was an extremely powerful force that managed to limit wars. He began to see war as a political tool. As he writes in On War, quote, War is not merely a political act, but a real political instrument, a continuation of the political process, an application by other means. He began to revise On War with a new stance. And so Clausewitz had to admit that policy is more powerful, and indeed war must abide by, right, must serve policy. You are fighting in order to achieve some political end. And any kind of limitation, right, any kind of, of li limit to the war effort comes from that political rationale. And when you ask people today, what is, what is Clausewitz saying about war? What is the definition of war? They'll say, oh, war is simply a continuation of policy by other means. But if this is your take on Clausewitz, right, your, how you imagine war is very, very different. War is not a total, uh, um, um, a total scene of complete mass chaos and, and, and violence and destruction. No, it must be guided by some sort of political rationale. I don't want to completely destroy the enemy. I actually just want to win a battle or to, um, uh, achieve a very limited goal. I don't need to kill pretty much everyone. The problem is, of course, that Clausewitz managed to um, change um, book one and book eight, and then he died. We're left with two very different conflicting ideas about what is war and how to fight it. On War had two legacies. The first way of reading his work, his first version, that focused on total war, was popular throughout World War I and World War II. If the only thing that matters in war is the battle, battle is by its very definition in, in character, it's, it's not at all about strategy, it's about tactics. Um, so if you follow Clausewitz to the ex most extreme, uh, you know, logic of it, you don't need strategy that much. You just need a battle or a series of battles. Um, and, and I would say that for this reason, the Germans are uh, traditionally not very strong on strategy. It's because they read Clausewitz, right? Um, um, the first iteration of Clausewitz. You gather your people, you gather your army, and you try to meet the enemy uh, at a certain moment where you have a numerical advantage, and then you strike. And Clausewitz is saying very clearly, you cannot win a war uh, if you're sticking, if, if all you're going to do is uh, defend. This will get you nowhere. It's the strongest form of war, but it'll get you nowhere. You need to be, you have to be committed to the offensive. You have to, you have to attack. There is no other, you're most vulnerable and most exposed, but there is no other way of winning a war. Could you, could you share some more specifics about how leaders in the First and Second World War adopted the, the ideas in this text? So you think of the of the uh, of the act of the military act that started that opened the First World War. It's the Schlieffen Plan. Now, if you know, I'm sure everybody knows everything about the Schlieffen Plan, but I'll just uh, <laughs> I'll just cover it briefly here. Um, it's a gigantic act of 
um, it's a gigantic attempt to capture the French army, wherever the French army might be defending, assuming, right, that they will defend Paris. So if we assume that they will defend Paris, we're trying to get closer to Paris in order to capture the French army there and force a gigantic decisive battle. One battle that will decide this entire war. This was critical for Germany, and they had limited time. Russia was gearing up to enter the war in opposition to Germany. Germany only had six weeks before the Russian army began to attack. In addition, Britain was also gearing up to fight Germany. The German army didn't have the resources to fight France, Russia, and Britain all at once. So capturing France was a strategic move. So you have to, right, if you're a German general, you have to be done with this front within six weeks. And the only way to do it is to follow Clausewitz, force a battle, a decisive one, and you can expect the French to be somewhere near their capital, which is where you're going to catch them and strike, right? And for this purpose, you will amass most of your army, and that's a huge, huge, big mammoth, right? It's a huge national army. Uh, you'll send most of your soldiers there and, uh, you know, hope for the best. It's basically, right, if you follow this logic, the Clausewitzian logic, you're forced to gamble. You're forced to put all of your eggs or, you know, one or two of them because you only, you only have, um, you know, one, uh, one chance, one big battle, one big battle. So you will force this big battle and it's your only chance. You have to gamble. And the thing is that the Germans were this close. They almost won this one. They were very close. And then, of course, they failed. Now, if the Schlieffen plan failed, why was Clausewitz not discredited? Uh, it was assumed that it wasn't um, that it wasn't executed in the right way. It was assumed that they didn't put enough soldiers, enough men, um, um, on the right wing, which was the main wing of the attack. Um, the critique was that, that within Germany was that there were not enough forces as the Schlieffen plan indeed called for um, in the West. How do you see Clausewitz factoring into World War II strategy? Um, you know, were, were all sides reading him and trying to adopt his ideas? So, of course, um, you know, by the Second World War, you have everyone uh, had to deal with two things. One was the lessons of the First World War. And the question is, what lesson do you take from the First World War with this huge problem of, and that's, you know, our, our second problem, um, modern firepower. Because modern firepower, the reason that the First World War was so destructive was that you read Clausewitz and you send your men to fight, but they meet modern firepower that Clausewitz never had to think about, and it decimates them. I mean, it, it, you cannot show, show yourself, expose yourself in a battlefield, right? You cannot stand there all, all, um, exposed to fire because this will mean that you're dead. So how, what do you do then, right? You still have Clausewitz. You believe that Clausewitz will give you the key to solution. You have to attack. You cannot just defend and defend. It will give you nothing. So in the Second World War, you get new ideas. I hate using this word because it's not the word that the Germans were using, but most of us know it as blitzkrieg, right? This idea that you strike deeper, deep 
into, um, you know, behind enemy lines. You send your tanks further into, the, you know, you are trying to attack the headquarters. And you're not trying to annihilate first thing. What you're trying to do is annihilate headquarters, disconnect, right, this connection between headquarters and the fighting arms, and then you perform military annihilation. So um, I think World War II is the culmination of total warfare. And then the adoption or the, well, the, the, the deployment of the atomic bomb is the end of total warfare because it's too costly for anyone to use it. Yes, you, you, you simply cannot allow it to happen. Um, you know, that's the worst nightmare for everyone. The second reading of Clausewitz became popular during the Cold War, in the years following the Second World War. At this point, both the United States and Soviet Union had developed atomic weapons, and fighting a total war with atomic weapons would lead to mass destruction. That's the last war you'll ever fight. So we need to find a way of avoiding total war. And here's a way of avoiding it. Clausewitz said that we can avoid it if we allow the political rationale to govern war. So um, is Clausewitz still read and, um, you know, influential today? Very much so. I would say that, as I said, after this, the Second World War, Clausewitz is becoming the champion, not of total war, right? Now, after the Second World War, instead of reading book two, books two, three, four, five, all the way to book uh, seven, now what people are reading is book one and book eight, because they suggest that indeed wars are limited and they're limited because of policy, right? Because of reason, and this is the 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 character the the characteristic that Clausewitz attached to policy reason. He says people are all about the passion, right? The army in 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 the battle is all about the chance and probability, but policy is all about reason, and reason will rule, right, or will direct our military efforts. On war is unique because it can be interpreted in two very different yet accurate ways. I do see, you know, I, I've seen this this tendency of practitioners tend to read first iteration Clausewitz and, and political scientists tend to read second iteration Clausewitz, but they're both right. I think reading Clausewitz as he, you know, focusing on the first iteration is legitimate. I understand when I read Clausewitz, I understand why, why most of, you know, military professionals were found it easier to understand and to follow. It offered it offered them a very clear recipe that they could then, you know, they take they could take this logic and 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 put it to apply it, right? Apply it uh applied it in the battlefield. Um the other reading of Clausewitz, which is again very legitimate and and absolutely right, became very it became actually so fashionable and that it was the only uh the only way that it, that that students were introduced to uh, when I was introduced to Clausewitz it was basically this sort of you know policies you know the the ration the reason in 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 rational policy should rule war uh, this is what Clausewitz says I was never introduced to the other parts of 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 Clausewitz I think these are Two legitimate ways of reading him and of thinking about wars, and two 
these two ways were, were tried and tested, uh, and one is better than the other. <laughs> but historically speaking, you know, I, I, I think Clausewitz is, is I, I, I think the interpretation, right, the early interpretations of Clausewitz are very much legitimate. Not morally right or good, but legitimate. Now, um, what other what other areas of life or culture do you see Clausewitz influence? Uh, so Clausewitz is, you know, very much uh, considered a basic textbook, right? In in military academies, uh, when military men are being trained, men and women are being trained, um, this is what they read. Political scientists read him all the time. I assign him in my classes. Um, I don't think there's any, you know, um, security studies um, class that can that can safely, you know, that you can safely teach without without Clausewitz. He's very very much read, uh, and we are still looking for ways. In you know, we're we're still still trying to understand if the post Cold War world. Uh, is something that Clausewitz uh, can be naturally applied to. Imagine you're at a cocktail party and a grad student comes up and says, Professor Vardy, how did on war change the world? How do you summarize that big question in one or two sentences? It gave us the two most important theories of war that served us well all the way from 1832 until this very day. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.